0: Exodus 20, let me read and follow along with me in Exodus 20, verse 1 through 17. It says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. "...or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, Or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, this morning as I come before you, And, Father, as we come before the Word of God in the Old Testament, where you gave your people the law, Lord, give us an understanding of how the law works in your people's lives, both in the past and also in the present. And, Lord, as we look at each one over the weeks to come, I pray, Lord, that you would impress upon our heart the centrality of these commandments and the need for us to understand them and know them and where they fit in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that it would bring us to the end result. And we know the end result of you blessing your people with commandments is so that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength, and we'll love our neighbor as ourselves. I pray, Lord, that that would always be the goal of the commandments of God. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. So this morning as we, we look at that, we saw that in, in this passage of Scripture that there are ten words. Some have referred to it as Ten words. Uh, the Ten Commandments of God. The Word of God tells us that in the last days will be characterized by lawlessness. Lawlessness has always been a designation given to people who disregard the Creator God and His laws and decide to live as they please according to their own passions and desires. It has been a tragic fact down through history, both in individuals and nations have dashed themselves against the law in their attempts to disregard them and finally break them. However, the law of God cannot be broken. In fact, it is a fact that people have thought they could transgress the moral law of God with impunity. We find passages, scriptures like in Matthew 7, where the Word of God tells us, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice Lawlessness, And then, of course, we have a passage like in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. And just turn back to that and keep your hand in the Old Testament. In this passage of Scripture, we not only see the lawlessness that will take place in the form of a mystery, which is going on right now, but the one who is behind the lawlessness. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, it says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So even behind all this lawlessness is the evil one, the lawless one, who is causing more and more lawlessness in the land. And then a sheer clear definition of lawlessness in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, it says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And here is a clear definition of lawlessness, sin. Is lawlessness. Sin is breaking God's law. Disobedience to God's will. That's really the, the basic thing when it comes to lawlessness. And then, of course, Paul told Timothy, but realize this, in, in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. In other words, they have broken all the commandments. All right in, there's, in these days, we see that all around us. These scriptures reveal that we live in just such an age where people have kicked off any traces of the law of God and as a result, thrown off all the restraints that goes with keeping the law of God. Almost everywhere we look, we see the moral law of God abandoned while people have plunged themselves into all manner of debauchery and unrighteousness and lawlessness and wickedness. There was a ministry uh, called Faith and Action, not Faith in Action, Faith and Action, who launched in 1995 a project to try to get the Ten Commandments uh, into the hands of politicians. In fact, their motto was bring the word to bear on the hearts and minds of those who make public policy in America. One of its goals was actually to restore the foundations of our American culture then by placing the Ten Commandments in public places and in public buildings. This commandment project had given over 400 plaques depicting the Ten Commandments to members of Congress and other high-placed officials, including former presidents. Then in 2009, 14 years after they started this, one of the Faith and Action's granite sculptures of the Ten Commandments was ordered by the court to be removed and relocated. Actually, the three-foot by three foot granite sculpture of the Ten Commandments, which weighed eight hundred and fifty pounds, is one of four monuments removed by federal court order from the front public the front of public schools in rural Adams, uh, county, Ohio. Now, whether written down or not or in the, the monument was relocated to a prominent position and uh, on private property. Now, one thing is clear our society has been pushing out anything that would remind them that there are divine moral absolute standards and timeless principles all people are held responsible for by God, their creator. Whether it be written down or not, they are responsible because they have conscience, too, and they are confronted every day when they walk out of their door with creation, which God is telling us that he is God and his glory is displayed all around us, and people ignore that. Disregard for the moral law has fostered an acceptance of moral decay in our society. What once What was once spurned as sin is now considered a matter of personal preference or choice, which no one should question. When you read through the scriptures, and it's talking about the law of God, some of the things I want to look at is, what is it talking about? And which laws should we, who have trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, be concerned with? If anybody should be concerned with the law of God, it should be believers who have the word of God in their hands. So as Christians, we must take very seriously the law of God. And so that's what I want to really look at over these weeks to come. I want to look at what the Bible is telling us about the law of God, both in the past in its context and up to the present. So as I do that, I want to look at Old Testament passages of scriptures as well as New Testament passages of scriptures that give us an indication on what we are to do. So I probably will be going on for several weeks on this particular topic. So to start off, though, I want to look at the first thing, and it's the, the revealed law in Scripture. Now, as you're right there in the Old Testament, and turn over to Deuteronomy chapter thirty one, verse twenty four, because the first revealed law in Scripture is the law of Moses. Well, actually it's the second, but I'm looking at it as the first. All right, the law of Moses is is actually referred to in the Bible as the book of the law. It's referred to also as the Book of the Covenant and also the Mosaic Law. Now, for just our information, there are certain things I want you to notice that really the distinctions between the Law of Moses and the Law of God will be very important for you as you put all these things together in your mind as we go through uh, this particular series, series. Now, the first thing I want you to see in Deuteronomy 31, verse 24, is that the law of Moses was written in a book. Right? It's, look what it says. It says, And it came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete. So in other words, God had Moses write down on parchment the things that he wanted the people of Israel, to know. And then a second thing I want you to notice, there are others I just want to point out too, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 24, or verse 26, it says this. It says, Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. Now, in other words, in the first passage... Moses writes it in the book, and then once he's finished with the book, he places the book alongside the Ark of the Covenant. Now, just remember that as we go along. Now, the law of Moses is actually the, the revealed law is distinguished as uh, in three different parts. The first two parts are the civil law and The ceremonial law, which was based on the Mosaic law. Now, the civil law, Israel, you may recall, was a theocracy. That is a nation governed by God. It was not a democracy governed by people or a monarchy governed by a single person like a king. It was a theocracy governed by God, there was no legislature, there was no Senate, there was no House of Representatives, there was no group that made laws. The only lawgiver was God, and therefore, he gave laws to his people. The judicial law, or the civil law, directed, was directed at, really, the management of Israel under God as God being the principal ruler with respect to its encampments, its marches, its wars, its inheritance, its marriages, its punishments, and rulers as it related to national Israel. So then, I say that for this reason, the civil law then has been nullified. In other words, we are not under the civil law as believers. We are not under a theocracy, as Israel was. But the Bible does say we are to obey governing authorities. God has ordained for us to live righteously and uh, wholly as aliens on the earth so we can be his representatives. So, in other words, the law of Moses was only for Israel and any proselytes who would connect themselves to the nation of Israel that was the civil law second part of the mosaic law was the ceremonial law prescribed the ceremonial law prescribed the rites of worship under the old testament economy and grafted up, that was really grafted upon the second and fourth commandment Now, these were the various religious ceremonies that were given to the people through which they were to worship. This is how you're supposed to worship, right? That's what we find in the Old Testament. There was the Passover, there was the Day of the Atonement, there was the sin offering and the trespass offering and the wave offering and various other sacrifices that were commanded under the Mosaic Law. All these offerings were simply foreshadowings of Christ, the Messiah, who was to come. It was the shadow of the cross extending backward through the centuries before he came. That's what they were designed to point to. They were all designed to point to the Messiah coming and what the Messiah would do when Christ, the substance of all those sacrifices, finally came. The shadows faded away. So that means the ceremonial laws were abrogated. They were nullified by the coming of the one whom they foreshadowed, namely Jesus Christ. For example, we no longer keep the Passover or the Day of Atonement, for the Scripture clearly declares to us, clean out the old leaven so that you may be A new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. And then it says this it says, For Christ is our Passover. Christ is our Passover in Scripture, also has been sacrificed. In other words, when Christ came, he fulfilled all the major sacrifices in his person and in his, the fleshly embodiment of Christ on the earth living a perfect and a holy life, he came and he was that. So then that the ceremonial law has been nullified, there is no more sacrifices for sin, that is really, by this will we have been sanctified, it says in Scripture, through the offering up of the body of Jesus once for all. There are not many sacrifices anymore. Jesus performed everything that needed to be accomplished and finished in his one-time sacrifices, so it nullified everything that went before that time. So in the book of the law, Moses recorded approximately 640 separate ordinances in his own handwriting, and we should be thankful that the civil and the ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant are not in effect today. They are not in effect today. In fact, the, the law of Moses demanded an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Deuteronomy 19, verse number 21. But Jesus clearly demonstrated the civil laws written in the law of Moses were to be set aside when he said this. He says, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus, what does he say? He says, but I say. In other words, Jesus is putting himself as an authority over the commandments. As the one who gives the commandments. He says, I say to you. And look what he says. Do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek turned the other to him also. This is this is like mind-blowing here that he completely and that's why he was accused of of really turning over the law of Moses because of these kind of statements that he made, but he was just demonstrating that he was the Lord over these commandments. He is the one who gave them. So that means that the law of Moses is only for Israel. Now that's important to understand because that brings me to the second thing revealed in the law in Scripture, and that is the law of God. The law of God. Of course, the law of God is the Ten Commandments. It's also referred to in Scripture as the two tablets of testimony. It's referred to also as the moral law and the law of love, and the, of course, the Decalogue. And that's what we have, what I read this morning in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 17, is really the, in, actually, it's recorded again in Deuteronomy. I'll get to that later on. But that is the law. Now, again, for your information, remember there's a the designation, clear de- designation we need to make. Be- be- Uh, between the law of Moses and the law of God. And this is what we see. Now, again, if you're in the Old Testament, look at Exodus chapter 31 and verse number 18, because here we see that the law of God was written on stone. It says in Exodus 31, 18, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, He gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. So you notice here that it was not written on parchment, and it was not written by Moses. It was written by the finger of God on stone. Now, that does give us some important information that the law of God was meant to be permanent, right? that it also meant to be central to the plan of God's redemption. Now, again, look at Exodus chapter 40 and verse number 20, and I want you to notice where this law was placed. Now, again, remember, the law of Moses was placed beside the ark, and notice what it says in Exodus 20 of, chapter 40, verse 20. It says here, Then he took the testimony and put it into the ark and attached the poles to the ark and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. In other words, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, were placed inside the ark of the covenant. Now, if you never uh, understood what that is, it was the the box that uh, God said had Moses make where inside the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments, the budding rod of Aaron, and then of course there was the, the show, the bread that God, the manna that God gave the people in the wilderness, and that was there. And so in other words, it was put there, and on top of that was put the mercy seat. Now remember, the mercy seat was the place where the high priest came once a year into the Holy of Holies, and he as the people sacrificed their animals and, he, and the priest sacrificed an animal for his own sin and then the, the sins of the nation, then he went in with that blood sacrifice and he poured it on the mercy seat. Again, picturing what would come in the future when Jesus Christ would die in the place of sinners and be the ultimate atonement and sacrifice for sin. So you see that the Ten Commandments, the law they were to be permanent and they were to be central to the plan of redemption of what God was going to do with his people. So then the moral law given by God summed up in the Ten Commandments, this moral law is actually a reflection of the very nature of God and is a declaration of God's will which really directs and binds all men in every age and place to their whole duty to him as God, to themselves, and to their neighbors. And you see all those things contained in the Ten Commandments. And someone had said that the Ten Commandments were not given in Jerusalem. They were given in the wilderness Indicating that these commandments would not just be for the people of Israel, but they would be for all men, for all people from all nations and all tribes. So there is a, a centrality and importance of the Ten Commandments that we cannot miss as believers. And then the designation and the difference between Mosaic law The law of Moses and the law of God. You can see the differences, right? So, so the civil and the ceremonial law are for Israel. They are not, we are not responsible for those, even though Israel still carries those things out. At least the Orthodox do in, in many ways, except for the sacrifices. And so we see here in scripture that they are central and important. Arthur Pink, uh, actually a, Bible student extraordinaire, I would call him. He said this about the Ten Commandments. He said, the law of God expresses the mind of the creator and is binding upon all rational creatures. It is God's unchanging moral standard for regulating the conduct of all men. This law was impressed upon man's moral nature from the beginning and though now fallen, he still shows the work of it written in his heart. This law has never been repealed, and in the very nature of things, cannot be. For God is, for God to abrogate the moral law would be to plunge the whole universe into anarchy. Obedience to the law of God is man's first duty. So there are, are many today who would say, that having been redeemed by Christ, we now have nothing whatsoever to do with the commandments of God, that it does not matter whether we keep them or not because they have been nullified or abrogated. Well, that is true for the Mosaic law, but it is not true for the law of God. Some people have the idea that in the Old Testament, God tried to save people by getting them to keep the, old, keep the law, but then he found that they couldn't do this, and so he came up with a better way of saving people through Jesus Christ. So people conclude that the Old Testament has nothing to do with us because we're not under the law, we're under grace. You have heard that, have you not? This is a complete misunderstanding of the Bible and the moral law of God. So God had plans for his people, his people Israel, when he rescued them from the slave camps of Egypt. He was going to give them their own land. He was going to make them a great nation. However, Israel could not, be a truly great nation without a clear understanding of God's holiness and his high standards. So before Israel entered into the new land of Canaan, God supplied in the wilderness the Ten Commandments to give them a basic concept of God's holiness and his standards. So the Ten Commandments hold the people... with what God expects of them. Also, it showed them when they committed sin against God. The commandments told Israel what to do and what not to do in their travels through life. So when any Israelite broke one of the commandments, he was guilty of a serious violation against God. The will of God. Now, in saying that, did you know that for 2,500 years, man lived without the Ten Commandments, written by the finger of God on stone prior, of course, to Mount Sinai, where God handed down these rules to his servant Moses? So the question would be, what governed men before Sinai? That's a long time. Well, to figure that out, I want you to take your Bibles and go to Genesis. Because in Genesis are all the foundational doctrines that you're going to find in all the rest of the Bible. If you get Genesis wrong, you're going to get the rest of the Bible wrong. You've got to get Genesis right. So if you look at Genesis chapter 3... God put Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them one restriction. Now, you know this story. In Genesis chapter 2, if you go back up to chapter 2 before we get to chapter 3, in verse number 16 and 17, notice what it says. It says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... It wasn't an apple tree, so try to get that out of your mind. You shall not eat. For the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, that's pretty clear in Scripture. Well, let's put it this way. I'm calling this next one for an outline purpose, the law of conscience. Because if you look down to chapter three, verse five. Before you get there, let me just say that Satan tempted them with a promise by using God's word, and what he actually promised them is that if you just listen to me, God will give you a conscience, and when you get a, get a conscience, you'll know the difference between good and evil. Don't you want that? That was the kind of the promise. Well, look what it says in chapter 3, verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, doesn't a conscience inform whether something is good or evil? Yes, it does. As soon as they disobeyed God, They became aware of their sin against their creator. This inner monitor called the conscience accused them of something they did not experience before. Now, if you look also to chapter 3, verse number 7, notice what it says when all this took place. It says, then, verse 7, chapter 3, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. God among the trees of the garden. In verse number nine, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was, uh, Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked And so I hid myself and he says, God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So the commands of God are in the book of Genesis. In fact, their conscience told them they were naked in order to hide their guilt they tried to cover their nakedness to avoid meeting with God. And this is usually, this is actually what happens when people sin. They cover their sin and hide it. And what do they do? They don't run toward God. They run away from God. Because you know what? The conscience tells us that we're responsible, that we have done something wrong. So the voice within the conscience told them, They had done wrong. Their sin brought in curses and separation between them and God, their creator. Look at verse 17 of chapter chapter 3, verse number 17. It says, then Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. So in other words, some have called this the law of conscience, which uh, condemned those who did not have the written revelation of right and wrong. This is what I believe Paul was referring to in the book of Romans chapter 2. And it says this in Romans, you should turn there very pointed passage of Scripture. In Romans chapter 2, in verse number 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul referred to this, in this way, he says in verse number 14 of chapter 2, it says, For when Gentiles do not have the law, do distinctively the things of the law. These, not having the law, are a law to themselves. Verse 15, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So see, the scripture tells us God has created human beings universally with an innate knowledge of truth about the character of God and about the basic knowledge of right and wrong, a sense of good and bad. Now, because, well, as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, but because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. So God makes it evident to people that he's God, and there is a God, and he is powerful, and that they have a sense of responsibility before the Creator. But what do they do with that? The Bible tells us in Romans they hush it or they suppress it. They hold that knowledge down, all right? And then they replace that knowledge with foolish speculation in Romans the death of common sense, by corrupt religion or self-deification, by uncontrolled lusts and sexual perversions. In other words, once you suppress the law of God that you know of, then you just do what you want. You just do what your passions and desires dictate. That's what you do. But the Bible tells us that the evident knowledge of God is suppressed and withheld. And then in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, it says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, they didn't plan their life with the intention that they wanted to please God. They no longer wanted to please God. They just did what they want, and they did not listen to the truth that was evident to them. It was John MacArthur who said this about the conscience. He said, the conscience entreats us to do what we believe is right and restrains us from doing what we believe is wrong. The conscience is not to be equated with the voice of God or the law of God. Conscience is knowledge together with oneself." That is, conscience knows our inner motives and true thoughts. We may rationalize, trying to justify ourselves in our own minds, but a violated conscience will not be easily convinced. So the conscience is is not infallible because it is informed by many things, different types of traditions that people are born into. It's influenced by philosophies and teachings and societal factors and taboos. It's influenced by religious doctrine, whether true or false. It's influenced by many things, so the conscience, to operate fully and in accord with true holiness, it must be informed by the Word of God. So once somebody becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, What God begins to do with the Word of God is to bring your conscience to a place where you do become more sensitive to sin. You do become more sensitive to breaking the law of God, even listed in the Ten Commandments, because the Ten Commandments are teachers to us about what we should do and what we should not do. Right? We're very sensitive to that. In fact, if you've been a believer for a while, uh, the more you grow in truth, the more sensitivity you have towards your sin. Right? Even before you even act on your sins, even in your very thoughts and your very imaginations, you're evaluating yourself. Is this thought pleasing to the Lord? If I say this thing, is that something that would honor God? See, we begin to ask questions like that, which is very, very appropriate, and that's exactly what should be happening as a believer is growing in Jesus Christ Jesus because we want to please the Lord, right? The ultimate end, remember, transgression or sin is transgression and transgression is sin. That's disobedience to God. God now, a Christian who now is being informed by the word of God, what do they do? They want to obey God. They want to please God. That's what they want to do. And so on... The day of judgment, your conscience will side with God, the righteous judge. The worst sin-hardened evildoer will discover before the throne of God that he has a conscience which testifies against him. For it tells us in Scripture, I believe I have the Scripture on there in the last verse in verse 16, it says, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. So in other words, that even when the written law was not available to men, the law of God was still there, right in the beginning, and it was right there in God telling what he demanded, uh, to be true and what God said to do and not to do, and man was to obey that, and when they do not obey that, then of course they get into grave trouble. now that leads me to the next thing, and that is the three functions of the moral law, and the first function is just I want to say quickly is is a civil function that the ten commandments uh, Known as, is also known as uh, to be, have a civil function within a society, within a group of people. Though we do not have a theocracy, as I already said, the laws of God are used to guide the nations in the information that it provides about people making laws. In other words, many of the Ten Commandments are mirrored. In many Near Eastern texts. We do know that, for example, uh, a text called the Declaration of Innocence uh, from the book called The Dead, an Egyptian text from the New Kingdom, 16th century BC. In chapter 25, this document, in this document, we find the confession of a recently deceased individual who stated that he did not violate specific laws. And these laws in the document are similar to the Ten Commandments, and here they are, bearing false witness, disrespect to parents, theft, adultery, murder, all are mentioned in his statement, even our own founding fathers, and the documents they produced to form our government and country are heavily influenced by the Ten Commandments, by the word of God. The Declaration of Independence of the Second Continental Congress reads, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. In other words, God, not man, is the giver of religious freedom, and many of these uh, documents throughout the world are influenced by the Ten Commandments. Of course, uh, that doesn't mean that they're following them, it just means that they have been; their documents have been influenced by them. So, this f- first function is that of a civil function. The second one is that of a pedagogical function. That's a big word. I know it is, but it, it does, it's very practical. All right, uh, the word is very practical, and it, it's really the second function of the moral law is known really as the pedag- pedagogical. Function, and that simply means that it is revealing something. It is, in a sense, leading somewhere. It is uh, forming some truth to be explained to whoever is uh, listening and wanting to learn. And what that means is this, that the law in Scripture reveals sin, The law reveals sin. Now, if you take your Bibles and turn to the New Testament, you'll find there in Galatians chapter 3, and then also in Romans, several passages of Scripture that indicate the purpose of the moral law of God. And so what is the purpose of the moral law of God? Well, it's right there on the screen, law, The law reveals sin. So God is holy, and he sets the standards for his people. And as already mentioned, under the law of conscience and the law of commandments, people could not live up to God's standard. They found that they were sinners under the sentence of death. That's what happened. All the law did was condemn them. Well, then, why was the law given? Well, look right here in verse number 19 of Galatians chapter 3. It says, why the law then? There's the question. It was added because of transgressions. Of course, transgressions is another way of going past the boundaries, another way of saying sin, all right, breaking something right in this case it was breaking the law of God so in other words the law after the 2500 year period was given was added because sin was rampant why did God send the flood he sent the flood because the evil in people's hearts was continual ongoing every day See without the law of God being present amongst the people sin becomes rampant right and so it says there why the law then it was added because of transgressing transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agencies the agency of a mediator until until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made so in other words that the law reveals sin but it could not remove sin. The law promised, actually, the law actually pronounces guilt, as it says in Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world become accountable to God. So, so in other words, the law pronounces guilt. And isn't that what it does when we are convicted in our heart and we find ourselves guilty, right, for doing something that has broken the law of God? We have transgressed and we have sinned against God and we sense the weight, the guilt. Uh, unresolved guilt is very uh, troubling to people. It causes many other problems in people's lives. But nonetheless, the law was given for that very reason, to produce guilt, right? So it was able to produce guilt, but it could not provide grace. It wasn't designed for that. The law carries a a curse of death. In Galatians, it also tells us this in Scripture that curses is any, every, anyone who or everyone who hangs upon a tree, Jesus Christ being the one who hung upon the tree, but it brings the curse of death. But he could not provide a cure. See, Martin Luther said the law is a hammer, which smashes our self righteousness and leaves us prostrate before God in our sin. So, so the law was designed by God to shut everyone up under sin. If you're right there in Galatians, look at verse number 22. It says, but the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin. See, that's what it was designed to do. Now you may be thinking, whoa. If people are sinners in every period of history, and the law of God, the Ten Commandments, can't save them, what hope is there for me? Well, there was something very good that's contained in the design of the law. Contained in the law of God is a very unique and special design. And what is that design? Well, if you look in Galatians chapter 3, you'll see what it is, and it's this. Well, anyway, if you and I were to take a test and... uh, say okay do you love the lord f do you are you faithful to worship god in rest one day of week f do you honor your parents all the time f have you ever coveted f have you ever murdered anybody and if Je- what did jesus say it's not murder it's anger have you ever been angry with anybody yes f See, we all flunk. The law was made to show us that we could do nothing to save ourselves. That we were under the guilt of our own sin before the law. We were shut up under sin. Well, what was the law's design then? What is the good news to this? Well, it's this. The law is a schoolmaster. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 to 26. Notice what it says there. The apostle is explaining something exciting that, and if you take a look there, you'll see it with your own eyes. In Galatians three twenty-four, it says, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. It cannot save us but it can bring us right to the foot of the cross. It can bring us to the one who is the savior of sinners. That's where it leads us. Now, somebody could be convicted of their sin. They can come under the curse of the law, and yet they can be looking right at the cross and hear the message of the gospel and never believe it. They are still in their sins. This is not about being religious. This is not about coming under some kind of system of good works. This is being led to Christ. If you look at the rest of the passage in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, it says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by keeping the law. No, but by faith. We cannot be justified by keeping the law. And then in verse 25, it says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if I read that whole passage of Scripture from verse 21 to 26, listen to what it says. It says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. Verse 22 But the scriptures, the scripture has shut up then everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to our faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we know are no longer under the tutor. You are sons of God through Jesus Christ, through Christ Jesus. So in other words... It leads us to a place where we, by faith, receive the free gift that God is offering us, his grace and mercy to us, and we believe it. We take it as our own, right? And what God does is he, he gives us, he justifies us, he makes us right before him based on his righteousness, not our own. We have none. Our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. It was Martin Luther again who who said, the law is a mirror which reveals to us our uncleanness and causes us to fly to the laver to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. The law, said Luther, is a whip which stings our back and drives us to the cross for redemption and for salvation. That's exactly what it was designed to do. So if somebody says to you, I'm trying to be good and keep the law of God, you know what they're actually saying? They're actually under condemnation because they are trying to make the law do what it was never designed to do. You cannot be good enough. In a million years, you could not offer up to God good works that would equal what Christ did on the cross. Like right? Why? You're a sinner. And you will always sin, and I will always sin. Christ is the sinless one who dies in the place of sinners as a sacrifice before God, an acceptable sacrifice before God, and all who believe in him will be saved because he is the one who died in the place of sinners. Many Christians have a gross distortion of Christianity which supposes that in keeping of the law, there may there may be obtained the salvation of God. This has been and continues to be the most widespread heresy that has ever plagued the church and the world. If anyone's hope for heaven are based on keeping the commandments or the golden rule or the Sermon on the Mount or the teachings of Jesus, or any other set of rules in order to be right with God, then they will surely perish in their sins. No one, says James Kennedy, on this planet has ever kept all the commandments of God other than Jesus Christ. So you don't understand, he's the one we have to run to. He's the one who saves us. So, see, being under the burden of guilt and sin should bring us right to the the very place the cross is at so we can look up and see what Christ did on that cross and how he is the one who can save. A person is made right with God and comes into the family of God only, only through faith in Christ. That's why it says in Galatians 3.26, which I just read, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. How do I get born again? How do I get into the family of God? How am I made right with Jesus Christ? Not by anything you and I do but by what Christ has done. And that's what we believe by faith, right? So so the law brings us to hunger for someone to save us. That's what the law does. That's how God designed it. And that's why it's so important for us today. That when we're doing evangelism, part of evangelism is presenting the law of God to someone so it bypasses the arguments and goes right for their conscience. And when it does and you show them the Ten Commandments and you lay it out before them, you'll find that they, if they've broken one, James says, they're guilty of it all. But you and I, when we look at the Ten Commandments, we have to admit we probably have broken all of them at one time in our life. And if we've broken the commandments, even one of them, who's going to pay for that? Who's going to satisfy the justice of God for that transgression and broken law? Are you going to do that? Am I going to do that? No. The only one who could do that, the only one who could satisfy the justice of the Father is Jesus Christ, and that's what he did. And how do we know he did that? Because Jesus rose from the dead, and the Father accepted his sacrifice on behalf of all who believe. Isn't that tremendous news? That's good news. I hope you know that today. I hope this morning that you have come to a place that you have trusted and believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you are saying that I'm trying to be good, I'm trying to do what's right, you are already under condemnation. Fling that off and run to Christ and receive him as your own Lord and Savior. And you know what he'll do? He'll save you. Because he came to save his people from their sin. That's what he came to do. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning. Thank you so much, Lord, for what you accomplished on behalf of sinners. Thank you, Lord, that we now even know from the word of God that the law of God was never designed to give life and to save. It was only designed to convict us and magnify our sin. So when we saw the perfection of the sacrifice and the love of Jesus Christ on the cross, it would cause us to run to him, knowing that we could not save ourselves. We could not be good enough to appease God or please him. But By faith, we embraced him, and he saves us, and he forgives us of all our sin and all our unrighteousness, and he makes us right with the Father. That, Lord, that's why we have the promise of eternal life, that when we die, we have eternal life now, but, Lord, there's hope beyond this life when we live with God in his presence without sin, Without the curse that we're under now. And Lord, that is a day where a place where righteousness dwells and people love you and obey you and joyfully and happily perform the very reason the law was given to love our God, for us to be with him and him to be with us. Thank you, Lord. So I pray, Lord, work this morning in our hearts. Anyone who does not know you has never trusted you as Lord and Savior, who has been confused about what it means to be right with God. I pray today would clear things up. And today would, they would come and confess you with their mouth and believe in their heart that God raised them from the dead and you would save them. Please do that, Lord. And bring joy to the Christian's heart that has trusted you and knows that The law can no longer condemn us anymore. All the condemnation has been taken by Christ. When we're in Christ, there is no longer condemnation. Thank you, Lord, for that, for freeing us up from that burden. And we'll give you praise, Lord, for all the things you accomplished this morning. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.